this is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to sessions from the media rumble 2018 thank you all for coming and thanks chris uh, how many of you attended the session yesterday with chris okay so i'm going to be back for more <laughs> and you're back for more yeah so i'm just going to introduce chris again this time in a little more detail because we have more time um Christopher Lydon is uh, someone who I have been listening to since I started listening to podcasts. I'm a podcast addict. I listen to podcasts from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep. Um, and uh, because I'm single and I live alone, no one complains. So I am usually lulled to sleep with Chris's beautiful voice. And in the morning when I wake up and I do my yoga and Surya Namaskar, there's podcasts playing. So I think podcasts is how we're going to consume content going forward because how stressful our lives are and we have to multitask. We've got to find some other good ideas for your life. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, so far your podcasts are doing just fine. I'm happy. So Christopher Lydon is the host of Open Source, a podcast I highly recommend. An online forum for conversations on arts, ideas and politics. They have some of the most civilized discussions you will hear, the most enlightened, brilliant and soothing um he is credited with the original podcast radio on the internet in 2003 so which is why many people call him the father of the podcast before that he had reported on us presidential politics for the new york times in the 70s hosted public television news in boston and inaugurated the smartest of public radio conversations the connection a national show based in boston He is known for the range of interests and the depth of his interviews with cultural emin with cultural eminence in the US John Updike to David Foster Wallace and abroad Edna O'Brien and Mohsin Hamid Orhan Pamuk and I also heard your podcast with Pritish Nandi or was it Ashish Nandi um you uh, you did a series with Indians so you can check those out How many people know Ashish Nandi I think one of the great wise men of the world and I'm I'm hope to see him next week We also we did a one is one that's in the can um uh, uh with uh Ai Weiwei just two weekends ago the the Chinese artist philosopher i think he's the great artist of our moment in the world but anyway go ahead yeah um then over the last two decades he's recorded conversations in Jamaica Cuba Ghana Tunisia Egypt Lebanon India Pakistan Singapore and China and he will record some more while he's here i hope and i'm going to quote a few things he said in his various interviews to publications around the world Quote, podcasting was born out of the despair around the Iraq war. It was a political response to a giant breakdown in the American conversation, in the world conversation. Unquote. Another one, quote, one thing is we have a low budget. We also have a few generous angels, but we're also moving towards asking listeners to support us. I would hate to see it become a capitalist tool, but so far we've managed to live simply and ask for help when we needed it. And finally, I will give you one more quote of his, which is my favorite. Quote, podcasting was where people could use four-letter words and speak a kind of raw, angry opinion that a great mass of the population believes and wants to hear. To be yourself, to be political, to talk the way that we talked at home, in the kitchen, even in the bar. It was a huge gift from the internet. We knew where we were at a turning point. I would get into my car and listen to public radio, and I thought, God, this is like the dark ages. The world is never going back. So, welcome, Chris. Um let's start at the beginning what spurred you to upload a podcast and what do you hope to achieve like why do you think I'll record my voice I'll upload on the internet and people will find it what was going through your mind when you did it the first time in 2003 uh, thank you and uh, I mean I know it I know you say it touches me that you listen thank you thank you and I, I'm thrilled to be here and I think we have a a sort of a similar hope for the public conversation and I'd love to work further with you um what do we what do we hope um it was uh, actually um I'm wearing my blogging t-shirt uh, there was a guy named Dave Weiner who came to this Berkman Center at Harvard and uh, he was a proto blogger early on and I didn't I he came to the same study place that I was at and I I wrote him and said uh Dave yesterday I didn't know how how to spell blog tomorrow I want to be a be a blog and he said eventually he said you know radio I know syndication what the world needs is an mp3 file that can be sent around the world on the web 
and let's work on it together. It took us about two or three months. He did most of the heavy lifting and the thinking, uh, but I was there to you know, work on the idea, and suddenly he said, I think we've got it. Um, there's no, there was no such thing as an MP3 recorder in those days, but uh, I said, what are we gonna do? And he said, that's obvious, you're gonna interview me. And so I did, and it was also, strangely enough, a little digression, but it was the 200th birthday of a great American thinker named Ralph Waldo Emerson. I don't know if you know Ralph Waldo Emerson, but he lived in Boston, Concord, Massachusetts. He was the Ashes Nandi of Boston uh, in, in the middle of the 19th century, an incredibly wonderful writer. But he had a notion, I suddenly realized that the internet was an Emerson idea. He, he was an intercultural uh, character. He believed in one species before it was fashionable. We're all the same. The brain is one carburetor for the engines of all the human species. We can relate to each other. We must be expressive. Emerson said a lot of famous things, but among them, trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. In other words, believe that the truth is in you. Or as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. But believe yourself. Speak your ideas. They're probably, they might be wrong and you can change them. But they might be right and somebody else might be speaking those ideas tomorrow and don't let the other guy get it first. Anyway, Emerson was a gigantic thinker, but he inspired me with the notion that you can speak for yourself. It's possible. And now we have a medium. You don't need a corporation. You don't need a big investment. You, if you have an idea that, or a conversation or a song that you want to share with the world, you can do it on the internet. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's almost an incredible um, truth. Emerson was famous for knowing a lot the English poets of the 19th century. He, he knew Wordsworth, he knew Coleridge, he knew Carlyle, but he also, his most famous poem is called uh, Brahma, and he studied the Hindus, and he studied the Persians. He was a model of a kind of global mind searching um, to, to, be, to, to be real, and suddenly we had the technology, just in the last 20 years, to do it. So I thought, let's, let's experiment. And that's, we've been experimenting ever since, and frankly, I think, and I think this is something that you and I, maybe everybody in this room shares. Uh, we're not ideologues, we don't have campaign. I'm not trying to uh, change human nature. I'd love to change a lot of human politics, but we're basically trying to have the best conversation we can imagine having about stuff that really matters to you and me and the people we love and our children. What, what would we talk about if we could talk about anything? That's what we're trying to do. And who would you want to talk with if you could talk to anybody? I want to talk to Ashish Nandi. I can't wait to, to see him again. I've interviewed him a number of times. But one thing we have to talk about, uh, I think, uh, is why do we talk about so much stuff that we're not interested in? Why is media so fundamentally wrong? And we love it. We grew up in it. But we know that most of it is bullshit. It, you know, it's selling something. It's selling a bad idea, or it's selling something that's not good for your body, or your life, or your mind, or your spirit. So what if we just, like, we're not gonna talk about that stuff. Okay, um, okay. I'll, I'll just, um, you know, read out this point. Pardon my pronunciation, it, it could be wrong. So uh, you had, you know, made this point, uh, the rediscovery of what Studs Terkel called Vox Humana. Or humana, how do you pronounce uh, that? He called it that fabulous instrument, vox humana, the human voice. And you say that's the first and best and most human medium is audio. Yeah, you know, we fell into conversation over dinner last night with somebody who had thought about it more, more than I. But basically, it all, all human expression begins with the two heartbeats in a in a in a pregnant woman between. There's a rhythm between her heart and the child's heart, the baby's heart. And it starts there, but we're, we're, we're listening and we're tuning. The people who have thought about this a lot anthropologically know that listening in the primeval forest in East Africa, where we all come from, um, was as important as seeing. You had to know the sounds of the night. You had to know uh, what dangerous animals are near, but also when you and I meet, I mean, no, no, no. we're measuring, I'm looking at you, but I'm also listening to your voice. 
Can I trust that voice? Is he happy? Is he, is he invested in our conversation? Or is he bored? Is he dreading me? Or is he dreading the subject? I discovered when we got to public radio, when people called, you know people by their voices. It's a, there's a presumption there. But you know a lot more than you would know watching people on television. I said yesterday, people are not listening to you on television. They're watching your hair. They're trying to figure, no, he needs a haircut. Or no, he's dying it, or he's not dying it. Or she's, Barbara Walters has a new hairdresser. In radio, I discovered, no, you, can hear, you, you can't see the person who's calling, but you know everything. Uh, this person is scared. This person is earnest. This person is vengeful. Or this person, whatever. We get it by ear. So part of what I love about radio is rediscovering the joy, the pleasure of the ear. Studs Terkel, a great interviewer in Chicago in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, a magnificent man, uh, he looked for what he called the feeling tone. Because a woman, a black woman in Chicago had told him, you've got to have the feeling tone. And that's what you're looking for, more than information, more than here's my policy, it's that feeling tone. And Studs was a master of saying, well now, I've been undone, how are we feeling about this subject? Let's get to the feeling level. And that comes through voice more than, more than what you would write. If you wrote, you'd probably, you could lose the feeling tone. Anyway. Uh, but you've clearly mastered the feeling tone because you, you see he, his voice has this, this dreamy quality that, that you can uh, listen to when you're like. Uh, this reminds me of, I'll just translate for you, it's actually a, a line from a Hindi film song by one of the most uh, fantastic poets uh, in the country. Uh, Gulzar, whose daughter incidentally will be here this evening for a session. Uh, he says, Naam gum jayega, chehra ye badal jayega, meri aawaz hi pehchan hai, ghar yaad rahe. It translates to, it's a song, it's a beautiful song, that my uh, name will be lost, the face will change. Naam gum jayega, my voice is my only identity if you remember it. Hey Amen. I it's, think it's, there's truth in that. Yeah. So, yeah, there is. Uh, now, um, you know, having listened to your podcast, you clearly have a wealth of experience and experiences that you share so often, like you did right now, from what you've read, what you've lived, what you've reported on. And you say that um, it's, it's more cultural conversation rather than political, or, or am I kind of misunderstanding, you know, no. what you... Um, However, when I do listen to your podcast, it is very political. I mean, the one podcast that stands out in my mind, especially amidst the kind of din that regular legacy media has become, was a critique of Barack Obama's, uh, you know, tenure. Uh, and you had uh, uh, a lady and a gentleman discussing it. And uh, one who was a fan of Barack Obama and continued to be, and one who was a huge supporter but became very critical, saying that Barack Obama had flipped the moment he became president, whether it was his. And it was such a, a biting critique of Obama, um, which you know any woolly-eyed liberal would kind of have to take note of. But it was communicated in such a convincing, yet calm manner. Is that a function of what you do, the kind of guests you get? Do you, do you make sure that none of the guests you get will cut in or be, you know, like they'll talk over each other like, like a lot of other podcasts. How do you maintain that sanity and that, uh, that, that dignity of communication in your podcasts? Well, assuming you're right that we have it, um, I'm, I'm not sure the program you're talking about, but I think the, the, the critic you're talking about was uh, David Bromwich uh, at Yale. Correct. And there's a cultural connection. David Bromwich is the... At Yale, the, the top professors are, are the sterling professor of physics, the sterling professor of this, that. He is the sterling professor of English literature. And he's an incredibly learned man, but he's also very quiet, well-spoken. He's the best what we call close reader I know. And uh, he started writing early on in Obama time about, in the, in the London Review of Books, which I find very, very useful, very intelligent, um, uh, about his disappointment in Obama. So, and I, didn't, I had not known him, but I read him very carefully and then asked if I could go and see him. I went to Yale back in the day. He's, he's 10, 15 younger, years younger than I am. But anyway, I just liked him. I think he, he was a very, 
he was, he's a language man, and he searched Obama's speech as if he were trying to read it as a literary critic would. And he said, there's something that's not quite true here. Uh, he's, he doesn't, among other things, he and I both noticed that um, Obama, he, he, he would approach the feeling tone, but not give you the feeling tone about himself. We never saw Obama angry. We never saw Obama talking about himself. I remember, and, and our standard, our standard of judgment was John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy was, a, to my generation, an immensely appealing man. There were disappointments there, too. But he said things that would reveal himself. Like, um, I remember one time he, he, uh, he, he had given a story involved. It, it had to do with the Cuban Missile Crisis. But anyway, he, a friend of his, Charles Bartlett, had written the story. And people said, are you going to reprimand Bartlett for that? And he said, I did not come to Washington to make new friends. Old friends are best. In other words, no, I'm not going to do that. But there was a, there was a fire in it. When, when the steel companies raised their prices, and he said, my father always told me businessmen are sons of bitches. Something came out. We never got that from over. Kennedy also said at one point uh, something was happening, and it was demonstrably unjust. And he said, uh, life is unfair. Life is unfair. And he spoke about it specifically with reference to friends of his who had died in the Pacific in World War II. But it, it was kind of, this is coming from the heart, no matter the public relations. We never felt that with Obama. We never. Sorry, was that because Obama was so controlled? He was a product made for the television of his time in 2008. And Kennedy was too. And is Trump a product made for his time? Because now the product we're looking for, when you say it comes from here, well, it comes from way too much here, if not. <laughs> Maybe 12 feet lower when, when you know, he's got on a hot mic. Um, uh, 12 inches lower, rather. Uh, so, um, <laughs> is, is, so I, I get what you're saying about Kennedy, and I agree with you on Obama. seemed very rehearsed that, look, I'm pretty. I'm saying the right things. I say it in the right way. Trump, like, smashed that, you know, through and through. So is he the feeling tone you're talking about, and has he mastered it in a different way? Who, Trump? Trump. No, because the, the, feeling, the feeling tone with him always has a, 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 a cheap shot kick in the, in the groin or some sort of ugly insult. Or it's, you know, the, the man's feelings are not good feelings. Uh, um, he, there's never any empathy. It's always about him, about my feelings. He's a kind of petulant, spoiled 12-year-old. Um, no, no, that's not, that's not the feeling tone. But, um, and it's not that we don't want to hear people emoting all the time. Kennedy had a, he was all business and all politics, but there were moments when you felt, yeah, we, we know what hurts him. We know where, where he, would, he would be ready to fight. Uh, and I think, anyway, you were speaking about our conversation with David Bromwich and others. Bromwich, to me, just has a, I hate to say it, uh, he has a learning and an intelligence and an accomplished skill writing. And then when he speaks, all that comes with it. He adds a feeling tone to uh, a very, very subtle mind. Am I making any sense? Yes, you are. Okay. So uh, now tell me how you have a, a huge um, you know, uh, experiences in covering American politics as a commentator. Um, Speak about how um, the media's coverage of American politics has changed. Uh, you're a huge critic of it, as was demonstrated yesterday and often on your podcasts. What was it like in the good old days? And were they the good old days? And what is it like now? And is Trump the culmination of that reality television becoming news television? Where does this intersection like meet and create this perfect storm that gives us Trump, whose head is like? I mean, no, no, these are really good questions. First of all, just a disclaimer: I, I don't have much experience. I'm right. I'm trying to make sense of the world I work in. But I always wanted to work in newspapers. When I was in college, in the '60s, 
the giants of American journalism were two men, really, in Washington. Walter Lippmann, uh, who had a philosophical training, a friend of you know, Bertrand Russell and uh, Whitehead and the, and the great minds, also a journalist. The other was James Reston, who, uh, who was basically a, um, a reporter and a very, very sharp-eyed, good reporter. But with both of them, I th those are the people I wanted to be when I grew up and I left college and I thought, well, should I do this or that? No, I'd love to be a journalist. I'd love to uh, try to interpret political events for an audience, large or small, and I, then I found my way to a job in the New York Times. James Reston hired me at the New York Times. I never met Walter Lippmann when he was alive, but these people had stature. They had a certain dignity, and the thought was that between the two of them, Lippmann wrote for the Washington Post and the New York Herald Tribune, Reston wrote for the New York Times. Between the two of them, you could you would get the mood of Washington, what was going on in Washington. But they had also superb staffs. I mean, Reston's Times, Anthony Lewis might be the, the journalist I miss most of all. He covered the Supreme Court, but also politics. Uh, Well-educated, aggressive reporter, believed in the First Amendment. He believed in all the right things. David Halberstam, uh, Russell Baker, who was a sort of a humor side. But uh, it was a I was a surprise to me that I ever was hired for that Washington bureau. But these were people of standing and stature. They worked hard. They believed in the institution. I think it eroded terribly around the war in Vietnam. It eroded further when the war in Vietnam was repeated, so to speak, in Iraq. George H.W. Bush. The beautiful thing about George H.W. Bush was that you knew he was lying when he did this. It was like some sort of Freudian, you know, I was out of the loop. I was out of the loop. I was out of the loop. Wouldn't be prudent. Wouldn't be prudent. Wouldn't be prudent. But then he said, we finally, with the, with the first Gulf War, he said, we finally licked that Vietnam syndrome, you know, meaning we can go and make war anywhere. And his son st starts this sort of war of choice on Iraq, Tony Blair egging him on. Suddenly, this sort of neo-imperial, we've not learned anything, we're going to do it all again, impulse seized uh, the Bush world. And to my amazement, every media organization in the country, somebody uh, beat me up yesterday for accepting, forgetting the Knight Ritter newspapers. And they did, they, they did good, but they were not in the league of the networks and the great newspapers who were suddenly in the tank for this monstrous war. And I thought, to me, that's where things changed. So would and, you say, because, sorry, both the uh, points that you've spoken about have to do with war. So was it a demonstration of patriotism, trumped journalism? Is, w w because no, I think it was, I honestly think that the, uh, the guardians of the public conscience went to sleep. They literally forgot what they were doing. They somehow forgot Vietnam. I mean, two, three million Vietnamese died in that insane war. The Fulbright, Fulbright hearings enlightened us on, on so much folly, and suddenly we're doing it again. You know, we, uh, there was, and the, the, I think of newspapers as, you know, they're the party of people who have been out there, who have seen certain reality, communicated some of it, and remember where we've been, and who, guard, who are there to guard us against folly of the, of the scope of the, of the Iraq war. But they were all asleep. I, I still can't explain it. I don't know whether it was, um, I think a great deal of it, uh, there was a kind of neoconservative notion which had merged in the right wing that we could affect the world, we could approve the world by bombardment. It was a crazy idea to begin with, but I don't know, the, the, the rest of the world went to sleep. But then the next stage to Trump, in my view, was that people, you know, a child could see that that was an idiotic war. A child could see that it wasn't working. A child could see today that it's cost maybe five, six, seven trillion dollars in response to 9-11. Um, this makes no sense at all. Um, but it has not been repudiated by the New York Times. It was never repudiated by the conventional politicians. Our politicians were so compromised, um, you know, they all, all the Senate candidates for the, for the presidency in, in uh, 04, no, I mean in, um, 
no, no, in 08, when Obama won, you know, uh, John Kerry included, but Hillary Clinton, they'd all voted for the war, and they knew, never knew how to get off that vote. How do we explain that we did this? And so they fudged it and expected the media and the people to forget it, and they didn't. And then Trump tore into the Republicans, and you know, when he, when he, when he went after George Jeb Bush and said, your brother lied us into a idiotic war, and we're still bleeding, 35 years of wars in the Middle East, and you know, Jeb Bush crumbled. There was no, he, Trump was right, and I hate to give him credit for anything, but he, he ripped through the whole Republican thing, and then, and then Hillary. You know, there's a, there's a famous book in America called um, Hillbilly, Hillbilly Elegy. And you'll tell me the name of J.D. Yeah, J.D. Vance. Anyway, he, he, he's lived in, in red state America, what we call. Conservative, um, disen, you know, disenfranchised, fl flyover country between east and west. He told me his own view, and I was not leading the witness. He thought 40% of the vote for Hillary in those states was from families that know perfectly well that, that the United States government comes to southern Ohio and parts of Wisconsin and parts of rural Pennsylvania basically for cannon fodder, for troops to do, fight these wars. There's a tremendous resentment that the media doesn't want to acknowledge because they were in on the war. It, 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 to my mind, I don't mean to sound too simple about it, but it all circles around the disgrace of the Iraq war. It was an illegal war. Colin Powell lied through his teeth on the basis of intel. That's why Trump can say, you know, what do the intel guys know? They sponsored this war. You know, George Tenet said, slam dunk, go for it. It, it was complete nonsense. So there's this profound cynicism today in the American public, particularly the less prosperous part of the country, that, that when, when Trump trashes Hillary, for these wars and says, no, the generals don't know what they're doing. We wouldn't still be there if they had any idea of what we're doing. That's only part of Trump speaking. But there was a terrific reason. The reason Trump got elected is not that America is a nation of bigots or that uh, Trump charms them or that they love Trump, but they didn't believe Hillary Clinton. She stood exactly for 20, 30 years of unbelievable nonsense, including how many people know that Hillary Clinton's roommate at Wellesley College was a Pakistani girl? She knows everything about Pakistan. She could, anyway, if she were curious. She did nothing to enlighten American people and policy on a policy in Iran, which, I mean, in Pakistan, which I think has been wrong from day one. I mean, literally from 1948, that division set up a huge confident, powerful Indian nation against a limping, wounded at birth, uh, minority nation, which was a perfect opening for American power. That's, that's what I would have said. And we've got to rethink that whole thing. Why, how did, how did the United States become invested in, in this awful division, which is now a nuclear confrontation, um, and, and why not be honest about it? Why not say something significant? Hillary Clinton doesn't tell you what she knows. She doesn't, she, and, and she... And she doesn't have the feeling tone. No, no, thank well. you, thank she, you, she, she just doesn't. doesn't. And um, so we, are st we, we had an impossible choice in 2016. I didn't vote for either one, and a lot of people I know, people who think like me, you couldn't vote for either one. Mm -hmm. And so now we've got to find a way out of it. But in the meantime, I think the media process that we're both interested in is how do we rebuild a public conversation, uh, a public scene, uh, on a stronger foundation? So um, I know Judith Miller did go back and has apologized for her coverage in the Times now of the weapons of mass destruction. She broke that story. and. Uh, I heard on the podcast with Bill Maher where she said, I was wrong on that story. I was led on, and I failed as a journalist. Uh, I think Colin Powell, too, has, has kind of said that we were led up the garden path and what it was wrong. How many other in the media have said we were wrong? And the other question I have is the two words you use, that they had stature and dignity. You know, 
the, they had stature and dignity, the journalists you spoke about, you know, how it's changed. You think today, politically, stature and dignity uh, have been corrupted by saying elitism. Anyone who reads, anyone who knows, and, and we see a lot of that in India, um, that intellectual has become a dirty word. If you read, if you know stuff, if you know science, oh, you're elite, as if, as if uh, wisdom or knowledge is a bad thing. Mm. Uh, when did that happen? When was it cool to be an idiot? Uh, what was the turning point? And why do idiots set narratives, whether it is on, on news agendas, whether it is the talking heads we get, why did that happen? When did That's such a good question. And you will have to explain India. I, but, I, but America... We follow US fashion set. <laughs> no, there, there is uh, unquestionably a huge anti-intellectual tradition in America. Make fun of the smart guys. Um, and it's a kind of old sport. I don't... But I, I think most of the people who are decrying those smarty-pants intellectuals are smarty-pants intellectuals themselves, and they're just trying to get themselves back into the conversation. Um, but it does go deep. Um, uh, g going back on the Judith Miller thing, she did apologize, but by then it was so, it, not only it was too late, but it was just her individual uh, confession. Well, yeah, not, not And they save her soul, but the New York Times, I don't think, I think the problem is that Bill Keller, who was the executive editor of the New York Times, covering, you know, her boss. Uh, he wrote a rather lame excuse for himself and then went on to another job in journalism. He said he was guided in his organization of the, of the, of the Iraq war coverage by, he picked out about eight people out there and he would, he would chart him, his own course by them, which I thought was a very strange way to do it. But they, they all were very, very, um, should we say, two degrees separated from the, the Likudniks in the American government and in the Israeli government. It was a very, very narrow circle. It was fascinating to me that the executive editor of the New York Times would, would, would say, would reveal that he had such a small circle of, of you know, people. Information flow. Yeah, and people he respected. Well, if he's doing it, I can do it, and if she's doing it, you know, we'll, we'll, misery loves company or something like that. I mean, I remember um, David Halberstam used to say that um, when he was confounded by a problem, you know, is this war right or is this wrong? Or, he would go to see a guy in Cambridge, Massachusetts named David Reisman. And David Reisman is just one example, but he, he was a genuinely wise old man. And you'd believe him. You know, um, in Boston politics, there was an expression, you know, what about, what about, you know, Abinandan? And people would say, he wouldn't tell you your coat was on fire. And so, who do we trust to say your country's on fire or your pants are on fire? Um, we lost, those are the people, when you think about it, they're, they're the treasures of our culture, you know. Um, Sorry to cut in, but, in a sense, because I want to go to some questions. Would you say this? It took a Trump for this to happen because now I see a lot of big media going at Trump. You know, they have uh, Don Lemon on CNN is regularly calling out Trump's lies. They have montages cut of Trump's lies. Um, uh, so I do see this happening in big media now. Going after Trump. After lies, saying that our country's on fire, your pants are on fire, liar, liar. Uh, you know. And it, he says the unemployment rate is under 4%. It's going down. So... Shut up. It's basically what he said. But also, we were talking about this last night. It's, it's amazing that, um, you know, this guy, the head of CBS News uh, in America, a man named Les Moonves, he's now in trouble on, on the girl thing, on, on, on uh, Me Too and sexual uh, misbehavior. But he said, um, I don't know about the country, but Donald Trump has been very, very good for CBS. And the New York Times would have to say, we hate him, but he sure has expanded our online um, uh, circulation like leaps and bounds. They're still alive because of Donald Trump. We call that achhe din here because that's happened for some. some say it again. We call that achhe din here. Good days. Good days are here for some some networks. 
Well, but, but no, but the, the, the attacking Trump turns out to be very good business for the media. Understanding Trump, seeing the roots of Trump, you know, the New York Times called Hillary Clinton the most qualified, best prepared, uh, what else, experienced candidate that had ever run for the presidency of the United States. They're still married to that notion of a woman that anybody can sort of feel was not quite, not quite telling the story. In other words, I don't think we've seen, we're not beginning to see the depth of, I mean, the, the question for the New York Times, you know, they advertise themselves now as the last refuge of truth, capital T, truth. Uh, truth, and in, in the Washington Post says, um, democracy dies in the dark. They picture themselves as, as the only and ultimate champions of sanity or something. The lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, but they still haven't explained how they, their part in getting us into this mess where the people don't believe those institutions. That's why I think you're much closer to the future. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, in trying, we've got to reinvent it. We've got to reinvent a media that gives, um, gives ordinary people an ordinary voice. Um, that, again, is something I associate with um, Ralph Aldo Emerson, but it's something I discovered in talk radio. People are smart. People are much, much smarter than the media gives them credit for. And to say, you know, as Hillary did, these are the, what did she say, untouchables, unspeakables? No, but, um, deplorables. Deplorables. That was a perfect reflection of the way she thinks. No, 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 we figured it out. I have my degree from Yale Law School, Bill, papa, papa, and, and just go away. No, what I discovered on talk radio was, um, and you could say it was an upper middle class audience to some degree, but not always. Our favorite talker was a woman named Amber, who was an illegal immigrant from Barbados. Uh, and again, the woman who told Studs Terkel about the feeling tone was a very disadvantaged woman. But the point is only um, a medium that doesn't uh, invest in plain voices, plain experience, common experience, and keep listening uh, is going to be is, is not for the future. And I think that's part of what we have in the internet, this global network of anybody can talk and, and be heard. So I'm interested in how your generation, and I want to get in on some of it myself, is going to build another kind of credible alliance of uh, hosts and talkers and listeners and um, with a wide range that, that gives them all their due. Well, we're trying, and we will do a podcast with uh, uh, Chris, which we'll upload separately because I could talk to him for hours. So we have time for a few questions. I'll take two or three questions at a time, and then Chris can answer them. Uh, please keep your questions short, uh, because I will then interrupt firmly and politely. Um, so let's start with the gentleman here, then there, and then here. And then I'll come to you, ma'am. Sir. Yeah, my question is... Uh, regarding the legacy of uh, listener-sponsored radio. Were you aware of uh, things like WBAI and the Pacifica Foundation, et cetera, during the Vietnam War? Very and what much role so. did that play? And also, I'm, uh, second question would be, I think that's enough for now. All right, thank you, sir. Uh, we just take that one. Chris, you can take them both together then. Yeah. Um, found your comments very illuminating about the political uh, happenings there, but just to stay on point, really, can you talk a little bit about creating the the podcast and how do you create a really good quality podcast, and then how do you get it out in the sense that people know it's out there and and are able to sort of uh, want to access it? So, in a sense, uh, creating the the demand for that. Right, thank you. So we'll take that gentleman first, then this, and after that we'll come to these two. Why don't you go, Chris? You can, you can start with these two questions, then okay. we'll come to these uh, two. The BAI uh, Pacifica tradition is alive and well in the hands of a marvelous woman named Amy Goodman, Democracy Now! Amy Goodman is, um, uh, it's not entertainment, very serious conversation with uh, <laughs> almost invariably people we respect and, and enjoy. Above all, Noam Chomsky, uh, if you live in America, you know Chom Noam Chomsky. He's a sort of another Ashish Nandi kind of grand old wise man. Um, and um, uh, so that tradition is still there. Uh, on the matter of how we do our podcast, um, uh, 
We try to do it as much as we can. I, we have a staff that's much younger than, my, than I am, but my producer, 20 years younger than I, um, we literally try to work off our own experience. Have you seen any good movies lately? What are you reading? What are you upset about? How are your kids handling this? Um, and we, we, we go from there, and then we argue tooth and nail uh, in, in, a, in a very respectful way about what would make a good program. And we try to keep it different. On the matter of Trump, here's a little tiny thing, and you mentioned cultural, cultural podcasts. You know, we, we I mean, I, I, my, I had a, in our little office pool, I, I, I voted that um, Trump was gonna win by 0.001. But I, I, I saw it coming, and we did, we did see it coming. We were very proud to see the discontent around the other side. But um, you can, I, we, don't, we don't cover Trump that much. And I, we tried, I mean, I tried militantly not to rise to every little bit of bait that he throws out there on the water. And so we've done a lot more cultural stuff in the last two years um, than we would normally because the politics is so empty and so you, you, you never catch up with Trump and if you don't like him in you know North Korea, he'll blow you away in Iran. I mean, it's a, sort of the changing thing. So we've gone back to um, music, music shows. We, we've just done one that I love about Shostakovich, the Russian composer. Um, and we do literature shows, we do uh, poetry shows, we did another, I mean, I, I think particularly for patriotic Americans, it's, uh, it's a great relief to escape back into the glories of um, American literature, writing, but the world's too. So I, I, th I think in, the, in Trump time, um, it's more fun to do uh, that kind of thing. And then we produce it as well as we possibly can. And the, our, my conversation two weeks ago with Ai Weiwei was, to me, a real high point. This is a very, very unusual man. He's, he doesn't speak in short sentences or clear sentences particularly, but he's, he, he's incredibly expressive. I'll give you one tiny example. Uh, this was done in Provincetown, Massachusetts. We had been talking in our conversation about um, the Rohingya and the subject of great interest in this neighborhood of the world. But he, he, we'd also talked a lot about China. Uh, we talked about all manner of, of things. And we ended up in the day at, a, at the house, an incredibly rich house, like, a lot, like the hotel we're staying in, but sort of Donald Trump's America, except it was very tastefully done. But we were in this house, and by then we were friends. And he was signing a book for me, and I said, uh, I, will, I must tell you, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm embarrassed by the wealth that's all around us. I didn't say I'm embarrassed, but I said it's simply amazing in America and more and more in India how much money people have and how much money they spend. And it's, you know, for the old Puritan conscience, anyway, I just said to him, um, we were in this house of people who had helped sponsor his trip. And I said, uh, the money in, the, in our world is unreal. And all he said to me was, uh, Bangladesh real? China real? This real? And that was it. But I thought, oh my god, what, what more could you get out of that simple reflection on, on, on wealth and equality and East and West, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but uh, people like that, I think, are the ones who will guide us, guide me anyway, and our audience out of the wilderness. We have to t keep touching back to something older, more, more trusted. Real. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, to your question of how you distribute it, I think Amit is a very good person to speak with, Amit Doshi, uh, because uh, Chris doesn't use social media and the, the, the modern age tools. He just, um, you know, he expects word of mouth and people who I do look some social media content. and I, I but that's not your thrust here that you know like doing social engineering and, and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. all that so you, you don't use the tools that you know people yeah. to make stuff go viral if you find ones that work uh, <laughs> I, i'll use them so let's just take a question here and then one from this young man here hello good morning sir so i'm himakshi from amity university and a budding journalist uh, so i just wanted to know that through podcast we share what's on our minds so um, but the content can be provocative at times. So um, 
and the government or the eminent personalities try to you know shut down the content so how do we fight this issue and second is that where do you see podcasts in the next 5 to 6 years okay and let's take one from this young man here um okay this question is i think a little disconnected from the general from what we have been talking about but um david foster wallace he mentioned that you talked to him at what point in his career did you speak to him and what was it like and what was his feeling tone like yeah um you can yeah you can take that first um i i, I would it's a difficult question but i would say one simple rule um uh i don't interview people who supported the war in iraq or if i do i make them i try to rub their nose in it a little bit um andrew sullivan for example but i you know i have completely lost interest in talking to tom friedman who is the brand name of the sort of imperial idiocy nonsense let's rally together and win this war in iraq and he's contorted himself a million ways to try to find his way back and he never will uh, on a program with me but no i th- i think you have to simply apply fundamental tests to the people that you you are going to present as worth listening to and and iraq is not the only one but um would you would you introduce them to your mother would you would you want your kids to to learn anything from them and if if not you know there are lots of other good people to talk to uh, and then we can just take this one and then we'll have yeah. time for just a couple more questions uh, david foster wallace uh i interviewed him when he first published uh, infinite jest and i was scared stiff because one thing he'd written a 1200 page book and people thought he was fantastic but i also knew a man who he admired hugely a, a writer named alexander thoreau so we started with that um he was he was um the feeling tone um you can listen to that interview and um the dearest thing he i hear now is he he would say ask ask him a question he said and of course we let that in we're doing it live but he was just thinking and then he would produce that the the interesting piece about it for me then and now was that um infinite jest was in fact uh, you know an autobiography of his drying out times he has a severe alcohol problem and he came to boston to go to a uh, a drunk tank and uh, survived it and he pulled himself together and when i first met him that wasn't clear we didn't know quite what he was writing about we knew he had almost become a tennis pro we knew he had a substance problem we knew he was kind of um nervous character also just phenomenally brilliant about literature and um i'd read i had only read half the book and uh, which so when we rediscovered the tape i was desperately afraid that i would thought we would, had missed the whole point but in fact he was very sweet he was a very nice person he was a very everybody says this now he was a he was a gentle peaceful big athletic um man who who i think he saw profoundly into the culture into the internet especially television he was still writing about television and i think he saw so profoundly into the future the dystopia and it may have been what killed him i'm not sure but i remember him now uh with with great affection he was a he was a good person and a, and a wonderful writer does that approach the answer i've got the feeling tone in there <laughs> let's we have time for just two more i'm sorry uh chris is an extremely patient man and he'll he'll be around uh we have to wind up from this venue and move to the next but i'm sure he'll love to talk to all of you can we just take one from uh, there and ma'am you can get chris afterwards uh he he is is extremely patient come uh yeah uh hi chris that was a fascinating conversation um i am curious to know if you could comment a little bit on the path that you took in terms of being able to sustain yourself as an independent podcaster you mean to pay the bills yes yeah um uh how to say it, it, it's not um i i still work for public radio i do work for public and i have a m- very modest salary from um public radio uh and we have had um two kinds of support um audience support through patreon and also angel support from 
people who weren't exactly friends. Uh, some of them were friends, but people who liked what Mary McGrath and I were doing and said, how, how can we help? And they still do. Um, so it's, it's a little complicated, because I, I haven't found an independent financial base just in podcasting. It's very much uh, at the mercy of the kindness of strangers and people who like the work. But I also think we're on something solid. We're not, uh, I, I, I tell people, we're much more solid financially than the New York Times, NBC News, you know, all the giant <laughs> institutions that you've ever heard of. We, we, we take small salaries, yeah, yeah. we work very hard, we ask our interns and assistants to work very hard, we, we pay our interns, but we're incredibly, I have to say, we're a very happy shop. Mary and I have had a, managed somehow um, to train people, get the best out of people, and let them go into their own careers, um, and we're, we're all still friends, there's been, there's been no sexual molestation at open source, <laughs> um, and, uh, or even disrespect. And, and that's, that's luck, really. And maybe that Mary saves me from being a monster, or I save her from being a monster. But um, uh, it works so far. But it's also pretty low budget, simple stuff. But it's high quality. Young man, I'm so sorry. You can get Chris after this. I really have to This is the up. first in a infinite series of conversations we're going to have, though, right? Yes, you and I. we will. For okay. the next five years, we will record hours five. of conversations and we'll upload them. Please. Uh, do check them out. I highly recommend you listen to Open Source and do contribute. We need quality stuff like this because while, while you know, the large corporations can set the standard on what is marketing, uh, we need someone to set the standard of what is craft and what is quality. And thank you, Chris, for doing that. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a lovely and patient audience. You can catch Chris after this. Um, you'll know what the next sessions are. And do enjoy the Media Rumble. And if you can, do subscribe to newslaundry.com so that we, too, can do something like what Chris is doing and in baby steps get there. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. Catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport. Visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.